Welcome to the Holden Village Podcast. Holden is a community of education, programming, and worship located in the remote wilderness of the Cascade Mountains. These snapshots provide a glimpse into the learnings taking place in our community. Let's tune in to this week's highlight. My name is Eleanor Sherry. I am a sophomore in the Holden School. When I came here at the beginning of the school year, I thought it would be good to have something to remember this year by. At first, we were going to make a Holden movie with skits illustrating the wacky elements of Holden and what has endured here. But as the school year progressed and I got swept up in the day-to-day experience of it all, the movie that I was going to make fell to the side. As I thought more about what I wanted to make, I realized that the essence of what I was trying to capture with my movie idea was a multi-generational perspective on what Holden is and was and continues to be through the years of its existence. Here's that in audio-only form. The four questions that I asked were, what were some times you feared for your life? What was it like here as a child? What has changed since you started coming? And why do you keep coming back? My first guest was Amy Tung. She was and is a maverick and ops person and naturalist, and she lived here from 1991 to 1994. This is the story of when they lost a truck in the ravine. Back in the 90s when we lived here, we didn't have IMCO. They just weren't here. We were the only people that lived up here. So you know how they clear the road for us now? Well, we did that ourselves. So we had a snow plow that would drive all the way from Holden all the way down to the lake and back mm-hmm. on days that we were going to meet the boat. We had a guy that was trained and he was the snow plow driver. One day he radioed and he was in pretty distraught. He had driven off the road. So he had slipped off. He probably just couldn't see where the edge of the road was. It was this huge orange dump truck, like the biggest of our trucks with a big plow on the front of it. So he had just slipped off. He was fine. He wasn't injured. He was able to get out of the truck, but um, he was pretty shook up because it was kind of scary. Where was he on the... He was... He was about in the middle. I don't know if he was in the narrows or probably like around six or seven mile. What we are referring to here is the 10 mile long path up from Lucerne to the village. The narrows is a stretch of road from about four miles into six miles in. So there was a pretty big ravine uh, off to the side of the road. They decided to take a crew down to try to get the truck back like onto on the, the road. Yeah to drive it back. There were probably four or five people that were wrapping their minds around how to do this. Mm -hmm. So I skied down because I wanted to watch, but I wasn't part of the crew. So I was taking pictures and watching. And they strapped cables and things to trees to try to secure the truck. And they were using a winch to try to roll the truck back onto the road. Mm And they were making some progress, and it was rolling, and things looked like they were moving along. Mm -hmm. And then the cable snapped, and the backup cable that was supposed to, you know, if the initial cable broke, there was a backup. That snapped, broke too, and Mm -hmm. the truck just went rumbling and tumbling down to the bottom of the ravine. And it was like everybody was in shock. They couldn't believe that that had just happened. Thankfully, nobody was injured. Yeah, no one was in it. Nobody was in it. Nobody was driving or sitting, you know, in the in the cab. But it just rolled, and it was so far down that there was nothing that could be done. It's still down there? 
No, so several years later, they talked to the Courtney's that are up in Stahican. They yeah. have a lot of heavy equipment, what and they the said Courtney's? they own the ranch up there, but they're also, they have a lot of different businesses up in Stahican. And they said, if you can get the truck out of the ravine, you can have it and use it for whatever parts or, you know, sell it. Or So they did, they came over here and it was after I had gone, so mm. I didn't experience any of that, but they got the truck back up to the road and they hauled it out of here. It's ridiculous. Yeah. But also that I can absolutely picture that happening. <laughs> That's Holden. Yeah. My next guest is Mark Bach, and he first came here at age 16 in 1970 with a church group and came back in 1971 and 1972 to hike and climb and live at the ball field. He then came back to work on staff in 1976 and 1979 for six to eight weeks, working at the hike house and being a maverick. He met his wife Kathy here and now co-directs the village with her and Stacy Kitahara. I asked him what I asked Amy, and he gave me a harrowing tale. Well, you were asking about times which were fraught with peril, you know, up at Holden. And because the, one of the things that drew me here as a, a young person, I was reacquainting myself with the West and the mountains. My dad had had a church in Central California when I was a little boy, and I remember California in my, in my memory, very, very vivid, very epic, uh, beautiful Sierra Nevada stuff. And then when we came up here, then when I was 16, it was like my eyes went, oh yeah, I remember that, this is amazing. So it just drew me back again and again, and it made me want to become a climber. Uh, it made me just want to get out uh, into the high country. So interestingly enough, as far as Holden's concerned, it was the place that first grabbed me then other things kind of followed in terms of my appreciation of, of being here. But since I was uh, wanting to hike, I was then, uh, I asked to be assigned to the hike house. And the hike house used to be where the medic station is today. Yeah. So that's the old hike house, um, which was a small little room and a half, I remember, um, where we just had all the gear and signed people in and out. We would go on hikes with people and then tell them what was available, the, the short little Honeymoon Heights thing or the much longer, let's go all the way up to Lyman Lake or, or Cloudy Pass and things like that. But right in the, in, the, in the course of all that, in my first summer as a staffer in 1976, there were some climbs going on. And climbing was interesting back in the 70s because if it was a more perilous climb, they would actually ask you to resign from the village just briefly and go on your climb and then come back and be reinstated because they were, they were trying to figure out really what could the village actually take care of in terms of the liability and, yeah. and responsibility for the people you know, who lived here and wanted to go out and do some things. Buckskin, however, was a fairly common you know, short climb that people could do in a day. Warner Jansen, who was the original business manager, did dozens of climbs up Buckskin with people and so on. So as it turned out on one day, it must have been July of 1976, interestingly enough, my future brother-in-law, Kathy's brother David, was on a climb up Buckskin with a few people. One of the guys fell fairly near the top and he got pretty banged up. So Dave, my brother, my future brother-in-law, had to run down Buckskin to get help. And so as soon as he arrived, I found out that there was, a, there was an emergency and so Werner just kind of grabbed us all together really quickly and just said to me, he said, gather a team, get up there and see what you can do and then be on the radio so you can tell us what, what we need to do. So that turned into a whole day's extraction where we had to get all the way up near the top of Buckskin with a, um, a litter. 
and then see if we could get him into the litter. They called the helicopter from Wenatchee, actually, I believe. In the old days, uh, the helicopters used to come used to come from the sheriff's department. So the sheriff's helicopter would come out here, and they would maybe lift somebody out if there was a medical emergency. But in this case, we had somebody way up on Buckskin, and we got up there and put um, Geyer, who was the guy's name, um, in the uh, litter. The helicopter tried to land, uh, you know, somewhere close to us, or at least put a skid on one of the rocks so that we could actually hand the litter off to the helicopter. We tried it for about 40 minutes and we couldn't do it. Uh, the helicopter was just kind of, you know, trying to deal with uh, the situation over 7,000 feet. And so in the end, what we had to do is that the helicopter said, I'm, we're going down uh, to the tailings at that point and we'll wait for you. And we had to carry Geyer in the, in the litter down to, to the flat where we could transfer him to the helicopter and then he to be flown immediately to Central Washington Hospital, which is in Wenatchee uh, at that point. So, you know, he, he had a lot of abrasions and, and was kind of contussed, but he survived. And it was one of those things where, you know, it, it's, it's actually pretty easy to either find yourself going too fast down a snowfield or a rock, you know, tent comes off in your hand when you're, when you're scrambling up in the mountains. Um, and then afterwards, what was interesting, that night at Vespers, you know, in those days, they would just, if you, if you call the helicopter into Holden Village, they just handed you the bill for like, you know, $1,200. They said, you're, you're, you're paying for it. And so Werner got up and he literally auctioned the, uh, the cost of the helicopter to the community. <laughs> and then they just kind of, this kind of, you know, I'll put a hundred bucks, I'll put up a hundred, and they just paid for it right on site. So uh, the people who were there that day remember that very fondly, how it wasn't just the emergency on the mountain, but it was actually the community going, oh, we're praying for Geyer obviously to to be okay and then also kind of bearing the cost of it together it was very heartwarming for the next tale of peril we have glenn Joson. he first came in 1973 at 12 years old because his dad led backpack trips to holden for his church he graduated from the holden high school in 1980 then started volunteering after 2000 and now is in the middle of his one-year stint so imagine you're riding in on the boat and you look off, you're, you're almost at the dock and on the far hillside, there was a smoldering fire, mm -hmm. very small. And Wolverine Creek is where that fire started from a lightning strike. And we're like, oh, that could be interesting. And it just smoldered and smoldered and kind of no big deal for weeks. Forest Service keeping an eye on it. And then months later, conditions dried out and the winds came up and the fire took off. It stood up, as they say in fire language. So I was on staff at that time. We were all aware that it was getting a little more serious and then it got real serious. <laughs> and then all of a sudden the village is getting evacuated and all the Rio Tinto people are gone. It was an absolutely full village. There was like 400 people here, like 250 Rio people and 150 old nights working, working, working. So we got the hammer down from the forest service and the sheriff's department, gotta go. So. I was one of the bus drivers. We had like every bus in the village, chock-a-block, you know, down. So we'd go down, load up a boat, the boat would come back, we'd load up another boat. And then the next day, did the same thing. And so it was all moving right along. And I got some amazing photos of like just massive smoke in the valley. And it was getting kind of hairy. And then the last day going out, 
Uh, the, the thought was that I and about 20 other people would be on a skeleton crew to take care of just basic functions at the village. And it's like, okay, take everybody out and then y'all will be back and we'll be here for weeks mopping things up, driving the last bus full of people down. And the Forest Service stopped us at the top of the switchbacks and said, okay, tomorrow I'll tell you, it's going to be kind of scary, hairy, but go on down and we think you can come back. <laughs> and I'm like... I sure hope so, because I don't have anything ready to go. And so we drop off everybody, turn right around, and there's myself and a couple of staff members on the bus. So we're driving back in, and the closest I've come to death to answer that question was the fire was on either side of the road, and I could feel the heat. And I could see burning logs rolling across the road in front of me. And I was glad that I was driving a diesel vehicle and not a gas. <laughs> so I was literally like, oh my, <laughs> this is interesting. So then, come back into the village and Chuck and Peg were leaders at that time. Chuck and Peg Hoffman were directors of the village from 2015 to 2020. They meet us and say, we're going to meet the helicopter at 3 o'clock. And we had like four hours to shut all the doors in the village, make some basic shutdowns. And then we all went up second level and the helicopters came, took us down to Shalam, which is a quick hop over the mountains in a helicopter. That's all I know. Many of the people that I interviewed had been here as a child, and I wanted to get their perspective on what that felt like. My next guest is my dad, Cooper Sherry. He came up here often as a guest when he was young, and hasn't quit yet. This is him talking about the Koinonia Library in the 80s and the sharing of the piece. I remember really liking as a kid to just go by myself and explore the village. I particularly remember enjoying the library, and when I was a child, my memory of the library was that it was upstairs in Koinonia, probably somewhere in the early 80s or something. And I just remember that they had all of the Tintin books. And so I would just come and sit up in the Koinonia library and read Tintin books. And it felt just amazing. And the other memory, oddly, is just as a kid, I thought that the sharing of the peace lasted forever. And it just, it, I literally couldn't believe, compared to my church back home, that during share the, sharing of the peace at Holden, it wasn't over until every single person had given every other single person a hug. And it felt as a kid like it took 15 minutes. Now as an adult, I know it probably didn't. But it was pretty amazing. My next guest is Ellie vegdal Crowell. She lived in the village as a young child with her family for several years, and there was often some sibling drama. The wonderful things about being a village kid here is the freedom you have mm -hmm. and the feeling that like no one's watching you, even though in reality, a lot of people are. So one of the stories, I had a group of friends who were very obsessed with spying. Mm -hmm. We went through our spy phase. We had walkie talkies. We had backpacks that were full of tools. I don't know if we ever really used any of them, yeah. but we felt like we could if we wanted to. There was a point where all of our older siblings, they felt annoyed by this spy phase and all that stuff. Yeah. So we were like pretending to spy on them. I think it was Shelly 5. All of our older sisters locked us in the basement. Oh no. But we were like, okay, this is the real test to see if all of our spy equipment works. And one of our friends discovered that a specific part of a mouse trap 
is a really good lock pick. <laughs> and so we took apart all these mouse traps um, a while ago. I don't know why, but maybe for this reason. And so we all had this like lock picking kit. <laughs> and we got out. We were like oh able my God. to the upstairs door had like a normal lock on it, you know, an actual lock. Yeah. And we used our mouse trap skills and we got out and then we were like, wow, our sisters won't know. We're going to like surprise them and make them so mad. And, and we, we found them and surprised them and they were like, how did you get out? They were like planning to set us free, you know, maybe a half hour later, but we were very proud of our skills. That is wonderful. Yes. Yeah. And now for her sister, Marta. She lived here and went to school with Ellie and currently serves as staffing coordinator. Middle school is like a rough time for a lot of people. And I think on the outside, it would have been a rough time for me. And I was a pretty awkward kid and didn't have like a lot of self-confidence. And I think that being here, it's just like an accepting place. And so I definitely felt more supported and held and just like accepted as I was which is what you need when you're in middle school, not the general thing that happens out in the real world most of the yes. time. <laughs> yeah. A question that I asked everyone was, how has the village changed since you first started coming? And this got some wonderful answers from people. For our first one, we have Marta and Ellie's dad, Rolf Vegdahl, who has been coming both as staff and guests since 1985. This is him reflecting on technology in the village over the years. Central to conversation about life at the village was the notion of a place apart. Everywhere you go, you have access to so much information and technology. And, and you're able to watch a whole series of things on your phone or wherever. When you come to Holden Village, you can still do those things. You can still stay in, in your room and, and hole up with your laptop or whatever. And, and I, I don't really know, you know, what the genie's out of the bottle. I mean, it's like, you're not going to tell people, no, you can't do this. You can't do that. And I'm not the best disciplined person about just saying, no, I'm not going to do this because, yeah. um, you know, because it's pretty alluring, some of the easy entertainment. And I, I just do wonder, even the notion of knocking on someone's door when you need to talk to them, which used to be what you did. And now, you know, my uh, my device makes a sound, and then I. It's convenient. It's quicker. It's more efficient. It's um, but I think there is, as we move headlong into new, I think it's important to look, at what we're leaving behind. In 1985, there were two VCRs. The director had one, and then there was one in Koinonia, but they weren't used that much, and. It, there wasn't really a lot of VCR material in circulation even yet. There wasn't even a lot of rental VCR movies and things. So when um, the village wanted like to see a film, for instance, there was a committee that chose the films that the village would watch in the wintertime. And they would meet, they'd come in these big crates that would um, hold these reels. And then they'd run, usually take a couple reels to run a whole movie. And so the whole village would show up because there was nothing else going on recorded movies, the potential to actually just entertain ourselves anywhere but together, besides reading books, which there was a lot of, was it was more challenging. So we relied on each other a lot more. 
Well, so then let's fast forward. People started getting their own VCR machines. Mm. So like maybe several years after I was here in 85, 86. And what happened then was that there was less motivation to gather, more motivation to go and hole up with a group of friends around their VCR machine and watch watch movies. So mm-hmm. it, it really took away from people's need for gathering as a whole community. Then move into the the current century and you know when I was here between 2007 2010 probably over a three month period I watched mostly by myself sitting in the living room of seven down the whole series of the West Wing great show but I was able to do that and every single hour that I spent doing that was an hour that I was spending not doing something else yes and, you know, the the else could possibly have been any number of community activities or... Um, so the technologies of just self-entertainment have increased so much. And back then you couldn't stream and you, there wasn't like cold and flicks or no. whatever there was. But you could... Almost everybody subscribed to Netflix. This is back when you would actually get the discs um, in the mail. It just kind of is a... A dynamic that changed a lot, changed the social life of the village a lot. And, and you know, there's so much that we've gained from the technologies that we've got. I think there's some thing, things that we've lost, too. So. Definitely. I agree. Now back to my dad, Cooper. After he reflected on Tintin and the sharing of the piece, I asked him what I asked Rolf, and he had this to say. I think so much of what the village is has changed with the times, and just the way the village sees itself and tries to integrate with the needs and the interests and the values of the people who are coming has changed a great deal. When I was a kid, it just felt like an absolutely unapologetically Lutheran place where you came, you you met with a bunch of people who liked to go to Lutheran churches, everybody wanted to go to different classes that dealt with a theology and all these different ideas and a lot of them are about scripture or Bible study and now it feels like those things exist but they have taken on an equal partnership if not been eclipsed in many cases by people's interests to be less religious and identify less as a Lutheran camp and more as some sort of new Holden that can be a new important thing to the world. For me, I don't want that. I want Holden to still be Lutheran and I want Holden to still feel like a place where the good church can happen. And I like the idea that Lutheran can be what the church needs to be the best church can be rather than trying to feel like the church has so many problems that we need to let the church go. Yeah. I feel like the Lutheran opportunity at Holden is to build towards a better Lutheran church, and that's what I'd like to see happen. Mark's response to this was... The thing that was so vibrant uh, in the early, early days was the intellectual ferment of Holden Village in combination with the worship. So there, there was some kind of alchemy, uh, and Bonhoeffer talks about this actually in Life Together, uh, his book that he wrote under incredibly dire circumstances in Nazi Germany about how people live together, 
and they confessed together. <laughs> and that's, you know, Holden was always trying to, to, to massage that idea that, you know, waking up in the morning and having your breakfast, and then there's a short little um, devotions offered at that point. We, we have our day, and then in the evening we, we touch base again with one another. And Do you it, think it, that continued? Well, it's, it's morphed. I mean, it's absolutely evolved. And the truth is, even now we talk about, okay, you know, that was the 20th century holding, you know, that existed a long time ago. Where, where are we now? Um, one of the hardest things to do is to stay, you know, real in your own time. Uh, and that, that I think, is, is we're, we're in the process of that. And for the last question, what does the village do best? Why do you keep coming back? Ellie said... It's, it's always the question of like, is it the place or the people? And the place also has so much value because like the buildings hold so many memories and the mountains are so gorgeous and the trails are so, you know, everything about the place is also very special to me. So, but the people, because the then also yeah. you can connect with those people outside of this place. And then you have that really beautiful connection of like, oh, this is this weird experience that we both had. And then you have all these people in the outside world that um, you had like a special connection with, a unique connection with. And Marta said, The thing that will keep me coming back to Holden after this time is the real living in community, especially the fact that we literally do each other's dishes we keep each other warm, we sort each other's trash, so that you don't have to wash your dishes every day. Like the community does it once a week for everyone so that you don't have to wash your own dishes every day. Like if you interpret that to everything, it's like one person cleans everybody's toilets minus the ones in your house. And one person makes sure the transportation is running and several people cook our meals every day. Like that's like a really powerful thing and especially living here during this pandemic time when we haven't had a guest population it's been really powerful to be supporting each other in that way and kind of keeping those rhythms of even though we're not doing this for for guests who are paying to be here we're going to continue doing this for each other as much as we can with the staff that we have like i think that that's like an ideal model for the world lots of people work hard if we can all work hard to actually support each other and have the assumption be everyone will be fed, everyone will be kept warm and everybody will be cared for in different ways. Like Stacy, Kathy and Mark talk about like a community of practice. And I just think that that would be amazing if that was the way it worked on the outside and there's a lot of shifts that need to happen. But I think that's what will keep me coming back is like the idea that we're like, Everyone has an important role here, and everybody is a part of keeping this place going. Whether that is a paying guest who is literally paying um, money to keep this place going, or if it's a staff member who's here for three weeks in the summertime to work in the kitchen, or if it's a teaching faculty to provide like programming for people coming up, like all of those are like critical pieces of this place. And to choose to come here in any capacity is to choose to to support this place and community in general. And I think that's really cool. And now with Amy. For me, I love the mountains and the wildflowers and the plants and just the beauty of this mm -hmm. place. I mean, I love the community. I love the remoteness, but 
I love the nature and the surroundings and being able being right here and just being able to walk out my front door with a pack on and be able to just go and experience it without having to drive, you know, five hours or whatever yeah. to get here. That's for me like the cherry on top. And Gwen said. It's a good gap between one phase in life and another. I think that's what it does best because no one stays for long. Even the directors should be five years uh, most. Coming to Holden is a temporary situation. And so it provides the opportunity to be in a crucible of transition with a lot of support. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of very talented people. You're in a remote, beautiful wilderness environment. It's supportive. It's flexible. So I think it's quite shiny <laughs> in that regard. You know, it fulfills that function of optimizing transitions in people's lives. So it feels like something else, socially positive and worth suffering for. The Greek word for passion means willingness to suffer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm kind of passionate about Holden Village, and there is a degree of suffering that entails. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what do we gain from this? We just heard stories across generations illustrating what Holden means to them. For some, it was the place, the incredible mountains drawing them into a small but wonderful community. The people and directors and even core values might change, but it'll be a while before those mountains go anywhere. For others, it was a childhood home that they have formed a lifelong bond with. And for many, it was a summer volunteer opportunity that they haven't passed up since. Besides last year, of course. COVID always has to come in somewhere. The people I interviewed may have had their demographic differences, but one thing that they all had in common was that they were here for me to interview during the pandemic. For so many people, the heart of this village is the constant flow of guests and volunteer staff that contribute to daily upkeep, fascinating conversations, and of course, holy hilarity. The big question for everybody up lake and down lake is, do we have anything up here without that? Does the village exist without you guys? The answer is a resounding yes. The pandemic has been hard up here, but there has been a thriving community of around 30 to 40 people this entire fall and winter season. The pandemic has been hard, but snow thaws, the birds come back. And when we reopen this July, we will be waiting for you with open arms, ready for the next season of change. Signing off, Eleanor. Can I push the button? Press this button. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to view the links in the description for more information or visit our website to find out more about the village. We hope you will make a pilgrimage to Holden. Blessings and peace to you.